Hi, this is Nick from Paranormal Research Investigators UK. Uh, next in our series of podcasts is about uh, the senses. It's more of an overview rather than a sort of specific on uh, each of the uh, the senses that we have. So Andy's with me as usual. So I'll hand you over to Andy and he can start the uh, the talk. Hi, Nick. Yeah, so this is just going to be a bit of talk about a recap of the four previous podcasts that we did. Uh, we did a podcast on on sight in the paranormal. We did a podcast on touch in the paranormal. We did one on audio in the paranormal. And then we did one on smell. So this podcast really is just to look at the four senses again, but quickly move on to alternative explanations about what could be happening okay. when people claim to have sensed paranormal activity. Yep. Uh, so so we looked at um, the previous podcast, we looked at the thing about misperception and just how common it is and that all our all our te- all our senses we can we can misperceive basically. And if we if we look at um, some of the factors that can cause misperception Basically, the information I'm using here I've got from ASAP, which is the the Association for the Scientific Study of Anonymous Phenomena, ASAP, and it's a brilliant website. They're a very good organisation. Membership's only £15 a year. I recommend you have a look at the website. I would certainly recommend joining. Um, I'm a member, Nick's a member. Um, but what's really good about the website is to have some very very good information on it that's accessible to everyone you don't have to remember to read this information you can look at it and 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 go into more detail about what we talk about and what i'm going to do is just talk a bit about some of the alternative explanations that they have for when people claim to be experiencing paranormal activity um morris townsend is someone who's written a lot of these articles and where somebody else has contributed i will acknowledge them as well um especially with the temporal lobe epilepsy but i'm going to start with misperception and uh, morris townsend talks about how misperception probably accounts for probably more paranormal reports than any other single cause and he argues it's very important to eliminate uh, um this factor when you you do your research and obviously some of the things that conditions that help people misperceive is environment factors where there's low light um maybe the object appears out of line or blends into other shapes and poor poor lighting uh, it, it depends how far away from the anomaly uh, anomaly anomaly because the distance of objects makes it harder for you to recognize them correctly and yeah. this, this obviously helps you misperceive them especially peripheral vision we talked about peripheral vision and how that operates and Again, you know, I think we learned in the previous podcast that our eyes are designed to see actually very few, very few detail. Uh, and what your eye does is basically continually scans the environment and your brain then fills in gaps. Uh, so we see our brain, not of our eyes. And when it comes to peripheral vision, we tend to see a monochrome. Um, we see shapes that are black or grey. And we don't obviously recognise objects as as, as as readily as if we're looking directly at them, yeah. and that could account for quite a few of the um, sight uh, misperceptions. So, 
and a misperception works because the witness does not necessarily recognise what they are seeing. And what Morris and ASAP have talked about and are, are, are certainly trying to push to help people understand the paranormal better is they've con- coined the term called xenonormal, which is X-E-N-O-N-O-R-M-A-L. And xenonormal is basically something that appears paranormal but has natural causes. So when we talk about the four senses and we automatically assume it might be a paranormal activity, mm. um, what what um, Morris and Aesop look for is basically, well, the majority of reports will probably have a natural cause. So it's a bit like if you have a witness that says that, you know, they look in the sky, they see the planet Venus, don't recognise it, they might report as a UFO. And I think we can actually, when we've, we've um, both fallen for um, yeah. a sighting that we yeah. thought might be a UFO, uh, yeah. and it turns out to be a planet, was it? Was no, it's it? actually the star Antares. That's right, yeah, yeah. Um, and the, I mean, we're both vigilant, intelligent people. You know, we, look, we looked at it. We looked at it from different diet. We looked at it from different angles. We split to look at look at it. Um, and it wasn't until later on that you started to look up the star system and find out exactly what was there. Yeah. Uh, and also we did a bit of research afterwards and we learned that because the eye movement scans continuously, um, if you look at a pin of a prick of light, because uh, your eyes are constantly moving up and down, left and right, it'll look like it's moving. Yeah. I mean, I think the other thing was it was quite a hot day or had been a hot day, so there's a possibility that it was heat haze as well. But... But what we were looking at um, certainly looked as though it was moving around, sideways, up, down, all around. Mm. It didn't look static. Um, and I was utterly surprised because I've always not been able to understand why people um, could say that a UFO was possibly a star or a planet. Um, I just assumed that you just couldn't make that sort of mistake. But when you see something like that yourself... Uh, you suddenly realise that it is moving around. It certainly yes, appeared to be moving around. So that was that was quite a, a sort of a learning point. Mm. And I think I've learned not to judge people too harshly when they claim to have mistaken this planet for a UFO because, let's face it, it can happen to anyone. Yes. Uh, and it certainly happened to us. Yeah. Um, so when you talk about the xenonormal, you know, you have to think about what animals are around during the night. Uh, so if you think you've heard a paranormal scream then you've got to look at well you know are there foxes sleeping somewhere at the bottom of your house at the bottom of the garden um, badgers are, are very uh, owls mm. barn owls tend to make very if you're not used to hearing a barn owl they can make some very strange sounds screeching sounds hissing sounds people report hearing a hiss and they think it's paranormal when it could be an owl so so yeah so uh, you got to look at the cultural background as well. You know, a lot of us now um, are familiar with UFOs and aliens and spacecraft. However, you think about it, in the medieval times, that wasn't a cultural norm. The cultural norm was fairies, it was dragons, it was um, goblins. So we now talk about mistakenly seeing alien creatures mm. or, or UFOs when in the past it might have been a dragon or... So again, do we? Because we expect to see something. If we misperceive something, and we expect to see something, our brain will fill in what's, what's called a visual substitution. It'll fill in a, a something from from your memory banks, uh, and to you, it could actually be very detailed mm. and convincing. Mm. 
and it's just the way our brains work and i think yeah. we found that out in the previous podcast yeah. that we we really probably misperceive more than we actually get things correct yes uh, i mean i suppose again it's down to levels of expectation you know and, and what people are thinking they're going to to see they have preconceived ideas um but then i suppose the the, the other side of that is that you come across something which surprises you um shocks you perhaps scares you and um it means that uh, you apply i suppose almost irrational thought rather than rational thought um but still it's, it's an interesting concept anyway yeah and i think um when your brain experiences a conflict between sensory inputs what what your brain does is it looks again into your long-term memory to recognize the object causing the conflict if it can't find it 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 will then go back into your cultural memory and he also links it to stress as well when people experience something unfamiliar you then start to have the hormone called cortisol and this hormone affects your memory and sometimes you can think you're having a very vivid flashbulb memory but this is not necessarily accurate. And um, if you're having negative feelings, it could be more biased towards them. Mm. So so the brain, the way it works, it's, it's always looking for a logical explanation to everything. And that's why misperception creeps in, because your brain has to have a logical, routine explanation for something. And so if it sees a badly, if it's a badly seen object, and if it's not recognised, it will try and make it logical for you, and and reconstruct something into it that makes it feel like it feels makes sense. You know, when we look at the senses, our brain's constantly doing this. It's it's trying to make sense of the world, and when it has when it, when you got stimulus that it doesn't quite recognise, it will automatically below your conscious awareness start filling in the gaps. Yes, it's pareidolia, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, that yes. effect that you. You can see a shape or something, and you'll you'll make something out of it. Um, I mean, it's like looking at the cloud and seeing a face or, or something. Um, the patterns, you know, sometimes the, the the shapes are ambiguous. You look at it one time, and it looks like perhaps two faces looking at each other. Um, the next time you look at it, it looks like the uh, the silhouette of a vase or something like that. So it, I think it's quite an interesting uh, sort of experiment. And, and that leads on to the problem with wit- witness testimony. Um, a lot depends on how soon you get to talk to the witness after the event. Um, if the witness have spoken to other people, because once you start creating the story and retelling the story, you are then altering facts and what you might have seen. You know, you you may have not seen a lot of detail to begin with, but by the time you finish telling other people, and they say, "Wow, that must be the woman who used to live here," mm. and then, "Oh yeah, yeah, that's right," because she was wearing that dress, and and then, without realizing it, you're starting to add detail that wasn't there, and and if you get conflicting information, whereby, you, you know, the brain, you think, okay, well, I need to, I need to make this to make sense, so your brain will start to alter your memories. And um, again, it will, will go into your long-term memory bank, and 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 this is a process called confabulation, which is basically false memory. And um, Morris Townsend again goes into detail about how confabulation tends to occur when there are conflicts between your existing memory 
and the current information or memories that um, examined in detail that, that they do not contain. So if we confer with the witness to the same incident, we might alter our memories to conform with theirs yeah. or the other way around. So yeah. just by talking to other people can then contaminate what actually happened. You have to be very careful about that. Yeah. And he does argue and he points out that confabulation is not lying. You know, lying is a conscious activity where you know what you're doing. With, with regards to false memory, it, it, this is your brain we're operating on an, on, a, on another level. Yes, yeah. Um, so, you know, this is... If, if, if someone's talking to you about an incident that happened 10 years ago... So, fading memories... So, basically, you know, fade, memories do fade with time. Um, it, however, if we do recall something over and over again, it might remain fresh rather than not fade. But if it's something that we haven't recalled for years, then then sometimes it can actually vanish altogether. So there seems to be a deliberate brain mechanism designed to keep our memories a manageable size. So I guess it's a storage uh, process. And some memories are formed more strongly than others, which we most people are aware about now. If it's a strong emotion attached to an event, then that seems to be more ingrained in our memory. Uh, the stress and how stress affects the the way our memories work. So I think what Morris boss more, more or less comes to the conclusion is that the sooner you interview a witness after an apparent paranormal experience, the better. Yeah. Uh, not all memories will fade, but with time, um, more seriously, they can be altered through recall and discussions with other people. So we have to be aware of, um, you know, how many discussions the, the witness have had and who yeah. with and, and when it was taking place. Yeah. So the best, what Morris explains that you can expect is to probably extract fragments of the experience rather than the full detail so yeah so you know that's that's just the thing about the way the memory works and the human brain works you know put that along with our senses and how we can misperceive and mishear uh, the pareidolia the visual substitutions there's a lot that can go wrong yes <laughs> um, and there's another thing that might affect people when they claim to have paranormal experiences and that's temporal lobe epilepsy and again, if you go onto the ASAP website, uh, there's a good article by Teresa Shepherd, and she describes a bit about about how how the brain works, the different areas of the brain, what the temporal lobe is. Um, so basically, the temporal lobes are the areas located just above the ears and towards the back of your head, uh, and uh, these these lobes function ma mainly for memories and remembering. And it also helps you with your emotions. And they're also involved in speech, hearing, and perception. So you can see where this is going. If you've got epilepsy in that region in your brain, uh, if you've got seizures. I mean, and also what Teresa points out, which is really good, actually, another thought about this is that, that t temporal epilepsy can be undiagnosed for years because it's not something that... You don't you don't necessarily have those grand symptoms of a seizure where you're on the floor. Uh, you can have mild mild seizures whereby you do experience some hallucinations, but not enough to think. Well, actually, it's serious, or I've got yeah. something wrong with my brain. And she also states that everyone's threshold for a seizure is different. There's different levels of resistance for, for different people. I guess this also falls into again how the environment might affect um, your senses because if you've got a high magnetic 
field in your home and you've got the type of brain that is susceptible to um, being affected by these mm-hmm. low frequencies and amplitudes, then 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 that's another possibility for how your brain can deceive you. Right. So basically, what she describes as brief, simple partial seizures are the ones that could be responsible for some paranormal experiences. Okay. And with that, she says that it's probably more the case that you have a haunted mind rather than a haunted house, <laughs> uh, which is quite a good quote. Yeah. yeah, it's, yeah. Um, I think we've gone through the whole four senses previously and what can go wrong. And, and now these, what we just talked about, is other things that can go wrong when people claim to have a paranormal event. Uh, so it's not so cut black and white, is it? When uh, no. When you think someone's telling you a... A story that's happened to them you know you've got to think about how long it was um who who they've spoken with just so many things really yeah yeah so there, there are a lot of things that are actually going to distort memory and i guess coupled with the fact that our senses are susceptible um the actual input at the time is going to be a, a major factor so um i i don't suppose for one minute we're we're really saying that all Evidence is is going to be corrupt one way or another, but but I guess what we've got to be careful of is how things could potentially be distorted, and certainly how they will be uh, distorted perhaps over a period of time. And I think one of the the things about taking witness statements from the police or the police taking witness statements rather is that they become extremely unreliable after two days. So I guess that is a, a major factor to consider. Yeah, and I think what Morris is basically saying is you've got to eliminate the normal causes first. Sure. And and that's where he's coined his term xenonormal. Yeah. And once you've eliminated the possible causes for that, whatever's left then could potentially be paranormal. And it's 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 a process of elimination. Yeah. Um, you can try and eliminate misperceptions um, by talking to the witness more, yes. uh, find out a bit more detail about where they were standing or sitting in the room, what they were looking at at the time. You know, does that object look yeah. like an outline of a figure in low light? You can start going along those lines. With the touch and misperception, our our body, we have a mental map of our body based on vision, vision and touch, and I think what happens there, you can get a conflict between the senses. So, uh, Morris talks about the old—I don't know if you ever come come across this—the rubber hand trick. Oh, right, yes, yes. Where you know you can once you've covered the hand, and your brain thinks the rubber hand is yours, but you're stroking the real hand, but your brain is getting confused. And it feels, and it generally feels like you're stroking the rubber hand, but yes. you feel it. Yeah. Uh, and then if you get a hammer and you're about to hit it, you will automatically <laughs> react, thinking it's going to hurt. Yeah. That's because your brain has got two conflicting stimulus going on. Sure. I mean, yeah. the other the other thing is that if your hand goes to sleep, you know, mm. you, obviously the circulation is cut off temporarily. Um, it goes to sleep, so you've got that numbness, and then you touch yourself with that hand. Uh, it's surprising. It, it it doesn't have the same sensation. Uh, there's a sort of vagueness to it all, which is uh, which is a bit sort of strange. Mm. And I think it's, just before we leave, I think it's very important to be clear that we're not saying every single paranormal activity has to be one of these explanations. You know, these are just things that it could be. Yes. 
Um, I, I do believe that paranormal activity does happen, but probably less frequent than is reported because yeah. of these misperceptions sure. and, and how our brain works, really. Yeah. Well, yeah. Interesting yeah. thoughts. Anyway, yeah. thanks, Andy. So I think that just about wraps it up for the time being. So uh, if you can make sense of that, which I think is a joke we used in one of the other uh, podcasts, but yeah. still. We, we <laughs> if, if you can make sense, please let us know because we don't. We can't. Absolutely. Anyway, thanks for listening. What?